everybody, and welcome back to the Chaluminati Podcast, episode 222. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the, the Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer of L.A. I feel like I've been Bob Mortimer before. Have you? Oh. Well, feel now like, you're Bob Mortimer again. I can't I remember like, who I've said and who, I, my, who I've not said anymore at this point. It's, it's coming to like the point it, where it's just, it's all blurring together. It's your time. It's time for a new era of of yeah. weird, inexplicable duos that you have a like insanely deep knowledge of. Yeah, I'm gonna have to dip into some some other uh, obscure knowledge. Yeah, and you know that's so that's so Bob Mortimer. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know exactly. That's so Bob Mortimer to me. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to dive into today's episode, but first we have to chill right at the top because we all know within 30 seconds you all stop listening. We have a live show on October 15th. Hey, hey on October 15th. At Terragram Ballroom in LA, our Halloween spooktacular. Tickets are for sale right now. The link will be in the description below. And uh, come on out. Have a nice weekend. It's not on a Thursday, so that's always nice. I'll post a food guide for the patrons. You can hang out, have a nice little weekend jam out. You know what I'm saying? Stay for a day or two. It's Los Angeles. It's the best city in the world. More importantly, it's the Jesse Cox Black and Orange Party. Show up. <laughs> We're black. We're orange. Combine the two. See you there. This is it. Let's have it happen, folks. Orange is the new black. But orange and black is the new Cox. Oh. Listen, you sure you don't want to do everyone in the entire theater wears a full ghost face? <laughs> no. No. I'm That's positive awful. I don't want You don't that. think I'd be sick as hell? <laughs> Alex's like- big scream? Alex's big scream. Like this I would not. Happen. I don't want anyone to spend twenty nine ninety nine on Alex's big scream. Do not do Alex's big scream. Alex's big scream is an unlicensed, unofficial. The fact event. that you say that means people will one hundred percent be like, Alex said, don't. But like, would it be funny if we did? If you come dressed as Ghostface, you better have some fucking orange on there. That's all I'm fucking saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> you better. What? What is this like threat that you're giving out? Uh, I'm very confused. I'm not. I'm not gonna say who I'm gonna fight when I when I when I get to the theater. He, all the ghost faces. Anyone in ghost yeah. face? Alex is fighting all of you at once. I'm. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna have that special was up version of the mask from right. uh, scary movie. <laughs> I'm coming after everybody. Can we like? Can we charge per person to watch that fight? No, but we can charge per month on patreon.com slash Pod, where when you give us money, we take it, we condense it, we compress it, we spread it among our crack team of creative and intellectual-based employees to churn out week after week the delicious, mulched, Upton Sinclair, ju- the jungle sausage mixture that is the Chiluminati podcast. And You don't want to see how it's made. You don't yeah. want to see. Yeah, a friend of the unions, the the Chiluminati pod. That's what it's I'm trying slurry. to say. Yeah, more like a slush of meat. It changed. It changed yeah. President Roosevelt's heart in the meat <laughs> industry. Guys, head over to Patreon.com/slash/ChiluminatiPod. Not only do you get ad-free episodes, not only do you get mini-sodes, you get art, you get access to our brand new show, Rotten Popcorn. There is one episode out at least, maybe more, maybe way more. Maybe way, way more. way more, but there's only one way to find when out. When do you think this episode was recorded? What is going on right now? What do you mean? It's January 12th, 2021. Oh, shit. Wow. All right. What are you talking about? I've never heard a more exact date given in my life. But please, go over there, check it out, get some stuff, and actually, just come see us. I don't really care about Patreon this week. I want you to come to the show instead. Come see me in Los Angeles. I'll put a food guide on the Patreon for all patrons. Uh from the lowest level to the highest level, just so you all, all could get somewhere uh, good to eat that's brand new. I got all kinds of new spots. 
and uh, I want you all to know that you should not get a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. You should get it outside of downtown Los Angeles and take a car there when you come, and you'll have a much better time. Go to the east side. Go hang out over there. Go hang out in West Adams. Go, go, s- hang, go, hang, out, out. go hang out over by me. Go to Venice, California. Yeah, go to Venice, California. Go get an Airbnb with, with six of you and go hang out by Jesse and uh, you know get thrown out of your Airbnb onto the beach. If you see me, you can shout, and I'll be like... We drankin', and then you'll pay for he'll it. He'll be like, guys, I saw the. Fr-. He'll be like, I saw the frogman. <laughs> <laughs> I can show you where I saw the frogman at the drive-through for <laughs> El Pollo Loco. Yeah. Oh God. They'll <laughs> have it. It'll be you become part of Chilumanati yeah. history forever. Patreon.com slash Chilumanati Pod for, for forever, which is a history you never you definitely want to be a part of. Rather, we have. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I don't know what happens if you're part of Chiluminati history. You you run the risk of getting canceled eventually when we all go down for something we can't even understand yet. Excellent. I not me. Yeah. <laughs> not not Jesse's no. lived through many he's, years. He's got of the pliable, he's, he's he's got possible deniability on this whole show. We don't we don't we're not even sure he's on the show. <laughs> Somebody well, could have paid ten thousand dollars at any point and changed yeah. his opinion to whatever they wanted. Yeah, and and actively ruined the show. Apparently, you know, it's a it's a thing we have to be very cautious of. Jesse, not me. Uh, speaking of, you know, time passing, this is an, an, an episode I think kind of like opens up with a reminder of how long we've been doing this as we tend to do. Um, and, uh, just so you know, this is going to be a two-parter going in. So gentlemen, I'm going to reach back into your memories just for me. This episode is that harsh reminder that we've been doing this for far longer than it feels like we've been doing it. No, no. if you remember the hell is this? nearly five years ago, episodes 28, 29, and 30, were our trio of Mothman episodes. <laughs> it's lingered since then for five years. Um, the final episode of that trio was less about the Mothman, though, and more about another kind of uh, paranormal event creature that occurred around that same time and place, that of the mysterious alien visitor known as Indrid Cold. The man who he had decided uh, and the man he decided to reach out to and the author of our primary source for the episode, a man by the name of Woodrow Derenberger, who wrote none other than Visitors from Lanulos. This is your book. Woodrow. Let's be. Woodrow is such an old Woodrow W. Derenberger. Woodrow. Lanulos. Lanulos. We'll we'll talk about that in in a a more probably part two than part one here. But um. Just so you know, like this book, when it was written, it was written way back in like the pretty early, it was like the 60s, I think, late 60s. I'll double check. Um, but when this was first made, only six copies were actually printed. It took years before they were somebody was able to get the rights of the book and actually do a mass printing of this thing. Isn't that like before the Mothman was cited? Wasn't that in the 70s? So, uh, well, this event takes place in the 60s. I did, did, yeah, no, this was all around the same time, right? I'm trying to remember, actually. When did Mothman, uh, uh, Pleasant, whatever it is. Uh, Point, Point Pleasant? Pleasant? No, it was about two weeks. This this all occurred about two weeks prior to uh, the Mothman sightings, which happened on November 15th of 1966. And this all took place in the beginning of November of 1966 as well. Um, also important to know that uh, this is a forward in this book and another familiar name in the Chiluminati lore, a man by the name of John Keel. You all know John Keel because he wrote Mothman Diaries, was heavily involved in the Mothman thing. And a fun fact I learned, the reason he was even in the area at the time of this wasn't for Mothman, wasn't for the UFO sightings or the injured cold. 
He was actually there because there was a woman who had written to him and claimed that she owned a cat with wings. So he got catfished by, by a flying cat? Yeah, literally. And when she got there, <laughs> she owned no cat and said she gave it to a boy because the wings had fallen off. She gave it to a boy? Yeah, she just gave it to a boy. In so the he got like he got like rejected from like a like sort of like personal level and that he didn't even <laughs> yeah, get. Yeah, like a weird professional right, level. But can we yeah. also talk about how once the cat no longer had wings, she was like, well, I don't want it anymore. Yeah, no like, shit. What kind of <laughs> owner is that? That's terrible. It was, uh, it was uh, yeah, it's kind of a bizarre. This is all happening in like that same two week span too. It's all very, very strange. Um, do you guys remember much about Indrid Cold at all from like our first episode and our only episode on him? I uh, know that he's like a lizardly folk. I know lizardly. that he's got lizardly. Like he's like not lizardly, but like it's kind of like a weird, pale, slimy man with like red lips. Is what I remember. He's, you're describing Men in Black, is what you're describing. But like, it's not that it, it's not. He wasn't that pale. Off. He was tan. Yeah. He wasn't slimy. What? He was normal. No. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. He has big alien vibes, though. Like he doesn't. He um. He's he, not he's, right. He's tall. Like he proportionally, he's weird. He can speak through psychic language, right? Yes, yeah. We got telepathy like a lot of other aliens. He so, came on the road in that, like, craft and, like, yes. came straight down. I remember that. Yeah, you remember that stuff. You just you remember sure him wasn't being a, a man you sure in black wasn't a for lizardly, some <laughs> You sure he wasn't just a lizardly, a lizardly sort? I'm positive I'm like, I'm like, he wasn't a lizardly sort. I'm, like, 99% <laughs> positive he wasn't a lizardly I'm, sort. I'm going to let you know we've never once in this show said... He was a lizardly sort. He was a lizardly sort. Yeah, you know when Venom, you know when Venom like licks himself, he yeah, like goes yeah. a little too wild. That's like what I'm imagining. Injured Cold from is Injured Cold. Yeah. You've got a very different oh. image of who Injured Cold is. Than I don't know how why. He was. It's, it's very, probably very some bizarre. like it's probably some creepy pasta painting of him from like 2004 that I saw on Live Journal that I'm like that's like burned into my brain. <laughs> that checks out. <laughs> Before we dive in, the question I always like to ask is, who is the person that's kind of the focus of this? Woodrow Derenberger being the main person who wrote the book, who was kind of the main focus of where we got a lot of our information. And the thing with Woodrow Derenberger, by a lot of people, like kind of people around this time, I guess, or just like any everyman, there's nothing really special about his upbringing. There was nothing really traumatic about his upbringing. Not much is like super known about his everyday, but it seemed like he was just a normal working man um, that really had nothing special in his past that would indicate um, maybe this is like his way of dealing with trauma. It doesn't mean that that didn't occur, of course, but in all research that I've been able to do, we just don't have anything of that to kind of like point at to say, hey, maybe this is what's causing it. Um, moreover, that's how I feel about his like venom lizard. Yeah, yeah. Too. Well, it's that's like, different. Yeah. It, you know, that's it's just there's not any research that doesn't. Right, 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 right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. there's no evidence that JFK Jr. didn't rise and go walk off and live in a small town in Alabama. There, it, there, there isn't anything definitive that says he didn't do right. that exactly bingo so with that out of the way let's actually jump into the event itself we're going to kind of pick up right then and there because anything prior to it nothing's really happened you know mothman hasn't shown up yet the bridges have yet to collapse uh this is very early in november the night of november 2nd 1966 to be exact and this night began as any other for our kind of focus of our story woodrow Derenberger. A seemingly every man who was a who was a traveling like sewing machine salesman for a living, as far as I could tell. And he worked in a factory as well. Um, he kind of had like it seemed like two gigs on this particular night. He was traveling on the Interstate 77, as he did nearly every day. And he was surrounded by the usual sights and sounds of an all too familiar highway. 
His mind was probably preoccupied with the events of his day, plans for tomorrow, or maybe even comforting thoughts of his home, going home to his wife, Mary Edna May, which is such a, like such a small town woman, like, like just like housewife name, Mary Edna May. I, I don't know. It's not about it. That just rolls off the tongue nicely. It sounds like she makes a mean, like, gooseberry yeah, pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never had gooseberry <laughs> yeah. pie. Have you? Is it real? It's, it's an old world okay, taste. Old what world what would you say a gooseberry tastes like? Yeah, what? It's a lizardly sort of berry. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it's it, it's 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 bitter. It's 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 a uh, it's not like one. It's, it makes sense why it's not one of the main berries that gets okay. around. But, it's, but it's does good. it like have a bad it's name a or uh, like what if you put sugar with it? Yeah, I mean, okay, any any berry, right? Like any berry, especially they're very bitter fruits. Any just a little bit of sugar, little lemon juice, cook it down. That's, you're gonna get a nice little jelly out of it. I don't know gooseberries. I haven't really like. I've had right, you ever like twice. gooseberry experimented? Like you're not the gooseberry no, authority. No, I I don't have like a gooseberry like a working gooseberry. You're not the gooseberry knowledge. baron yet. Now, would you say a gooseberry is more akin to like a raspberry? Or a blackberry, or like a cranberry. You don't know it yet, Jesse, but you sound a lot like injured cold right now. <laughs> like a red, like a red currant. Now, wh- now, what would you say a red currant is more akin to? I don't know. It's like a red little berry. It, I guess kind of like a cranberry. I don't know. Now, why is it called gooseberries? Do goose eat this them? This is a very in-depth questioning of what a gooseberry yeah, what is. Yeah, what do you, how do you know these things? I don't know. I had one. Uh, I ate some. They look like grapes. Okay. Okay. All right. All right, well, well, we can get back to the story at hand here. Uh, with Darren Berger driving on the highway, thinking of his daily events, you know, back into the into the scene. And as the rolling hills of West Virginia were sweeping by, something out of the ordinary began to take shape. At first, there was lights of a truck that came up behind him and rushed up on his, on his car, but quickly passed by him, only to just be another vehicle. But within moments of that truck, truck passing by, however, Lights of another truck seemingly peered behind him, rushed up behind him in similar fashion. However, as it approached closer, this truck didn't simply drive by. But from the dark expanse above, it wasn't driving behind him, but flying. And an unidentified flying object came up from behind him, descended over his vehicle with precision, and shortly zipped ahead oh, about going. 100 feet. We don't feet. need roads. <laughs> It slowly and eventually slipped ahead about 100 feet before uh, settling down as Darren Berger himself threw the car in park in sure fear and panic. It wasn't the sort of aircraft one might spot in an airport. It looked more like an oversized kerosene lamp chimney and its methods of flight defied laws of physics. And by kerosene lamp, I think the way I described it in the first episode was incorrect it didn't land like a upright kerosene lamp. It was actually horizontal and more looking like kind of like that bow tie shape of like uh you can actually see it. Boys, can you can you see this on the cover? Yes. Uh it looks like, like I want to say kind of like uh like if you like this is so stupid. If a lemon was modified so that if you stood it on its long side, you could sit it straight up with like a flat little end on the on the on the two tapered ends. Uh-huh. That's what it looks like. Like if you roll the lemon till it was like kind of flat, like a football, and then you added like feet, like like from a couch on either side of the lemon, and but but it kind of is like more like the consistency of like a bong glass. Like it looks kind of like a. It has like a. It looks curvy, like a fancy rolling pin. You would kind of get it like a. You know what it looks like? 
a vase your twelve year old made in art class. It looks like <laughs> it looks like a big it looks like a big uh, piece of kelp, like a like the end of a piece of kelp. It looks a little. What's that one Pokemon? Hold on, show it back, show it back. Bell Bell flat. What's the what's the Pokemon that kind of looks like a flower? <laughs> Bulbasaur. <laughs> <laughs> no, the one that has like the yellow head. Uh, oh, Weeping Bell. Yeah. yeah, he's like, oh no, that's what yeah. it looks oh, like. Oh, okay, we're going. The Mr. Bill school. of uh, Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's like, sure. Oh no! Oh save no! me, Alex. The Mothman of SNL sketches. Oh yeah. no! <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope I hope the listeners have a very vivid image of what this thing uh, looks like. Oh no, no it's vivid. That <laughs> oh no is actually just me realizing how old the Mr. Bill sketch is on Saturday Night Live. Oh uh, well, yeah. Oh I mean, no! How old is that sketch? Oh, I gotta say, eighties. Okay. Well, before I was watching, I guess. All right. So, like I said, this craft came up behind him, zipped ahead, and while Derenberger brought his vehicle to a cautious stop, he could only watch in a mix of awe and trepidation as this bizarre and extraordinary craft made a gentle landing about 100 feet on the road ahead. The sight itself was baffling enough, but what happened next would change the trajectory of Derenberger's life permanently. The craft, having now fully settled, opened a door where there seemingly was none, not to reveal a creature, but a man. Not some uh, alien with tentacles or multiple eyes, but a simple man who could easily blend into any crowd here on Earth with ease. While his immediate physical appearance drew no curiosity, his attire, however, was certainly not from any earthly fashion catalog. This will be the thing I think you remember him being slimy for. He wasn't really slimy. What were you going to say, Alex? Oh, it just sorry. gave the impression that his that inside his mouth, which he never opened, he had a long, slimy, venom-like tongue. <laughs> that and licked his own eyeballs with. Yeah, just to keep him moist. Yeah, of course. The, the clothes he was wearing shimmered. A blue metallic suit beneath a lustrous overcoat that seemed to both absorb and reflect the surrounding moonlight. He maintained a large, welcoming smile and kept his arms crossed with his hands both neatly tucked up into his armpits. It's a very important point he makes for whatever reason. But yeah, he's got his arms crossed and he's like this. And he's just smiling. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> uh, like the Creeper from DC Comics. I don't know who that is. Do you think it'd be better if instead of a suit, he had, like, uh, suspenders, and he held them like he was an old-time, like, well, I don't know nothing about lawyering, right? Do you think that'd be better? <laughs> you think that's what it was? Ah, well, I may be injured cold. Wait, hold on. How did he, how did he hold it? Was he like So he this? had his arms crossed, and both of his hands were neatly tucked into his armpit. So, like, uh... You remember uh, Mary Catherine Gallagher? Mary Catherine Gallagher, Yes! <laughs> I was yes, thinking superstar, the exact same superstar. thing. That's what I was thinking as Mathis well. Yes, has yes. seen I have 90s seen era star. SNL. He was there for the Will Ferrell years. <laughs> he saw it. He knows I did. Anna I saw Gass that movie Tire, multiple Molly, times. Molly Shannon. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that movie oddly well. Uh, the man himself stood at around five foot eleven, weighing somewhere between 100 and 185 uh, pounds, according to Dar- uh, according to Woody. Which I'm just going to call him Woody from now on. Sure. Uh, yeah. He's so like you know, kind of tall, skinny. But the man's strange attire and demeanor only held Woody's attention for a moment in time before there was a knock on his window from this strange man who had approached from the ship. And as the window, as he rolled the window down, without moving his lips, this man introduced himself simply as Cold. Yes, this was obviously none other than Injured Cold of, uh, of the title's episode, of the episode's title, rather. We sure he wasn't just low, like cold, like chilly? I'm cold. 
<laughs> I'm, very, I'm very That's cold. That's why he had his arms tucked into his yeah. armpits. The Hello. dude was just cold. It's freezing here. He wasn't smiling. He was fucking, his mu- face muscles were constricted because he was... <laughs> <laughs> well, though his mouth smiling or constricted, whatever you want to call it, uh, did not move from its position. His voice, or rather his thoughts, resonated very clearly in Darren Berger's mind. This is kind of uh, the first string of similarities between other alien-like encounters, obviously. Injured Cold, with his blue gleaming uniform that shimmered under the faint highway lights, maintained steady eye contact with Darren Berger, giving giving off a sense of profound and bizarre ancient wisdom. Uh, Kind of like this guy who just stood with authority, I imagine, when he mentions it like that. Just kind of stood, like, without really uh, any wavering, I suppose. Um... The nature of their conversation was as unique as the circumstances that had brought them together. Telepathy, a concept mostly relegated to science fiction here on Earth, was the chosen mode of communication. Every thought from Injured Cold radiated clearly, but not without asking first. Injured did ask, as the window was rolled down through vocals, asking if he would prefer the conversation to be vocal or to be telepathic. And sensing how nervous uh, Woodrow was, or uh, Woody was, Cold then made the decision to go ahead and make it all telepathic. Uh, every thought radiated clearly and piercing directly into Darren Berger's consciousness, and there was no room for pretense or deception, according to him. Their minds were, in that moment, a sort of shared realm. To Woody, it shocked him, and while, while it left him confused and frightened, Injured Cold repeatedly informed Woody to not be afraid, almost understanding every time those emotions rose how afraid he was. And Indrid, for all intents and purposes, seemed simply curious. He was asking questions about humanity. And Woody described this conversation, the way it was happening, the way it felt, as though there was a tingling in the front of his face or head. That there was like a weird tingling sensation when the telepathy was happening. Um which I think is kind of a unique detail that we don't get a lot from people who experience this telepathy communication with Greys, for instance. Indrid's questions ended up showcasing a profound curiosity. To him, he was curious what the distant lights over the in the road were, um, asking if that's where humans gathered and what it was. Woody, understanding that he was speaking about the city in the distance, answered exactly that, that it was a city and it was where trade, work, and people lived. Indrid asked if Woody worked for a living, to which he said yes, and Indrid explained he did as well, and that he was what was known as a seeker. That was like his job from where he came from, a seeker. Indrid, perhaps surprisingly, wholly understood simply replying that his people call, uh, and Indrid rather, I, 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 uh, let me rephrase that there. Indrid, perhaps surprisingly, wholly understood what Woody was meant, talking about the city in the distance, t- calling it a city, and then said to him that his people have similar places as well, but they're not called cities. They're simply called gatherings. A gathering of folk. A gathering of folk is, yeah, yeah. well, I'm just, uh, I'm just a country alien. Why don't we all just sit around the fire and bust out a slice of Mama Gleep Glorp's gooseberry pie? <laughs> gooseberries actually from a different planet. Yeah, that's why they're called gooseberries. That It's it's spelled uh, like, it's like Beetlejuice. Right, right, right. Beetlejuice. Goose. 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 <laughs> yeah, you goose. Injured went on to say that the illumination in the city in the distance symbolized like human innovation, societal structures, and possibly even their struggles and triumphs. He was just kind of taking this in from a distance. 
He quizzed Woodrow about their purpose, their origins, and their significance. And perhaps sensing Woody's continued anxiety, Indrid then went on to say to him in tele telepathic form, quote, Mr. Derenberger, look at me. I'm the same as you are. I sleep, eat, breathe, and bleed even as you do. And in that, it seemed to actually kind of bring Derenberger's or Woody's kind of high anxiety down a little bit to continue this conversation. Uh, during this conversation and this continued questioning, the ship Indrid had stepped out from was hovering about a 50 to 100 feet above Woody's truck while they conversed. After he had walked away from the ship, apparently the ship had lifted off and then went over his car and just hovered over it for some reason. And unlike, say, an abduction scenario in the style of the Greys, while the ship hovered and Indrid spoke with Woody, his truck never shuttered down. He was ne it ended up ru be running fine. He didn't have any lack of memory or blank moments of time. Everything seemed to operate wholly normally. And so much so that there were cars still driving by him. Uh, it was still late at night and not many, but he did note that there were vehicles that passed by. And they didn't stop? Everyone just kept, like, going? So we'll get to the other sightings that people do claim that they saw them and they went to the police. Like, we have police reports for all this stuff. And while there was fear and anxiety still within Woody, he never felt like he was in any true danger from this moment on. And the conversation continued to flow. It became evident that Indrid's line of questioning wasn't merely out of alien curiosity, but there was a deeper intent, a desire to just understand the very ethos of humanity. His questions became a little bit more specific, peculiar. He asked about... Um, things like why humans are at war with each other a lot of the time, why does it seem like humans are always so angry at each other, you know, things that a lot of abduction scenarios end up passing along, like peace and love and, you know, stay, you know, friendly with your fellow human and stop blowing each other up and stop ruining the planet. But instead of him passing those messages along, he was actually just kind of curious as to why the humans acted like they did. And Darren Berger couldn't really give a great answer because he was a fucking everyman who worked in a factory in a small town. It's just a, just kind of a uh, interesting way of of uh, imagining an alien kind of coming down and being like, "What's up with all like you know like we're always talking about uh, how silly it is that we're so centrally uh, located towards the middle of these like." legends and stories and theories about space and earth always being like a farm world or like the special development world but i love the idea of indrid cold just coming down here and being like how come you guys haven't figured out all this like bullshit what the hell's wrong with you guys like he has nothing to do with it he has no he's just a chill guy who likes barbecues and hanging out and he's just wondering why everybody's not just playing guitar all well, the time. Well, he's just stuff. a small town alien <laughs> that's why he just brought a pie by he, he yeah. just finished making it. <laughs> I don't understand all this jib-jab happening in the streets of the cities these days. I don't Dude, know nothing. That's exactly it, though. All I know is my, what Ma and Pa Cole told me. <laughs> I do love the website jibjab.com. <laughs> my simple southern lifestyle gives me a proclivity for simple cartoonish animations. <laughs> I like when they put my face on the cartoons. <laughs> I said, I never, I never said those things, and yet there is my mouth speaking them loud into this world. <laughs> What's wrong with you humans? How did you do such- And on a birthday card for all occasions. <laughs> How did you do that so, so magically? 
Indrid Cold has transformed into a fascinating character, and I'm really enjoying where he's going. Well, I thought he was a lizard guy, so this is all yeah. new for me. No, yeah. Well, then afterwards he licks, his, he licks his tongue, <laughs> and he sticks it out and licks like an eyeball or something, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, like, hilariously, like, that idea of him just being this, like, seemingly small town doesn't get why humans are like this is kind of, like, the perfect way to describe him. Not that he's, like, from a, a, a naive small town, but... The way humanity acts toward each other to him makes no logical sense. Everything about how humanity acts and they're always trying to kill each other. All this stuff seems very curious to him and he doesn't quite understand why things are the way they are. And we'll talk more about that as his encounters with uh, Injured Cold continue. Yeah, questions about human interactions, emotional expression, societal norms, and even our aspirations started pouring into Woody's brain. Woody, while initially taken aback, found himself answering as if he was the chosen representative of the entire human race. And he doesn't mean that like he actually was, but he almost felt like he wasn't built for this. Like this is not where like he's, he's doing a poor job answering this guy's questions because Indrid just isn't getting, it doesn't, it's not making any more sense for Indrid the more Woody tries to explain it. And the way he said it would work is as though the thoughts would form in his mind and just like without really any effort. And when he heard him uh, talking to him, it felt like it was his own thoughts happening, but in a different voice. Uh, very, very fascinating. But amidst this... Oh, sorry, Jesse, were you going to say something? Nope. Okay. Uh, amidst this barrage of questions, Indrid started revealing small tidbits about his origin as well. He painted a kind of cosmic picture of a planet by the name of Lanulos, nestled within the distant starlit realms of the Ganymede galaxy. And if you that sounds familiar, it's because Ganymede's also a moon. We'll get to that. The Ganymede sector is a quiet, down-home portion of the galaxy. And Lanulos is like America when it was first born. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The vivid imagery that was pouring into Woody's brain was of vast green landscapes, architectural wonders that defy gravity, and a society that thrived on mutual respect and advanced knowledge that made Lanulos sound both alien and familiar simultaneously to Woody here. This conversation, as deep as it may seem, only lasted about 10 minutes before, without Indrid giving any sort of sign, the ship that had been hovering above them now moved forward back about 50 feet, landed with, uh, without Cold making any notions. And when the conversation was done, Cold simply turned and walked back to the ship, but not before Indrid told, told Woody to report this encounter to the local officials and that this wouldn't be the only time that they cross paths. Then, within the ship, a doorway, the same one that opened when he left, opened again, and a second figure seemed to be standing on the inside, reaching out to help Cold up before the door closed and the craft flew off. Initially, he thought maybe they were opening and shutting the door, but later experience, he learned that's not exactly how it works, so he's just assuming that the person was maybe helping Cold back up onto the ship. He's not entirely sure. And yeah, and then this little kerosene thing flew up into the sky and zipped off, making a weird fluttering, warbling sound as it flew off into the distance. So he even remembers the sound it made. Um, kind of a weird little encounter that definitely left our uh, Woodrow absolutely shaken. As injured colds... Oh yeah, sorry. If you're about to say something, cut me off. Dean can edit it out. Don't worry about it. Okay. As injured cold spacecraft soared into the inky expanse of the night sky above, leaving only a transient glimmer in its wake, Woodrow Derenberger found himself alone again on that desolate stretch of Interstate 77. The stillness of the night was almost palpable, save for the faint hum of distant cars and the rustling leaves carried by a gentle autumn breeze. 
but the world around him felt different, as if he had stepped out of one reality and into one entire, entirely another one, which we can kind of describe as if we, you know, believe this for what it is, kind of ontological shock. You got to have that moment where your world no longer makes sense and things that no longer make sense happen in front of you. You saw it, you interacted with it, and now you're like, what the fuck just happened? His hands, which had been gripping the steering wheel the entire time with an intensity born of nervous anticipation, now began to tremble slightly. His heart started racing, and still processing the gravity of what transpired, it almost sounds like he began to have the beginnings of a panic attack or an anxiety attack. He took a few deep breaths, trying to calm his racing thoughts and the adrenaline that were coursing through his veins. He looked around, half expecting to see some sort of residual evidence of the encounter, a footprint, some mark on the road, or some inexplicable sign in the sky, maybe, in some, like, godly showing. But there was nothing. Only the road ahead, illuminated faintly by the headlights of his vehicle and the familiar surroundings of West Virginia's rolling hills. He started the engine back up and felt a myriad of emotions. There was awe, certainly, from having witnessed something so profoundly bizarre and otherworldly, and there was fear, an inherent reaction to the unknown. But surprisingly, there was also a sense of purpose and clarity, perhaps instilled by Cold's words, or perhaps emerging from deep within Derenberger himself. But the drive home, which usually felt pretty routine, was now a journey filled with introspection. Every turn, every mile, and every landmark prompted reflections not on just his encounter, but on life, existence, the vast uncharted cosmos, and what we just don't know as a people. And upon reaching his home in Mineral Wells, Woodrow faced the challenge of trying to articulate the inexplicable. How do you share such an experience without sounding fucking crazy? <laughs> he decided the first thing he would do is confide in the person he trusted, his wife and family. And as the words poured out of his mouth, he could see the play of emotions on his wife's face. Concern, disbelief, fear, and perhaps a hint of curiosity or wonder. His wife was trying to grapple with the enormity of what he was saying and was supportive, if not worried. Was her husband's life in danger? Were these beings real? Was he hallucinating? Were they going to return? Were they from the government? The household that night was above, uh, was abuzz with whispered conversations, speculative discussions, and an undeniable undercurrent of anxiety. The tremors of his own hands, he, he reclaims, didn't really even stop until 3 a.m. rolled around. And it's around that time, the way he says it in the book, I'm kind of just describe it a little bit less so. It sounds more like he was able to bring his tremors to a stop by being able to finally rationalize what was making him tremor. He basically said to himself that it was the telepathy and the unexpected visit that were making him so shaken and so anxious. When I think that might have just been him being like, again, rationalizing it away and maybe being like, you know, trying to make sense of what it was. Sure. Regardless, that night he was able to go to bed and fall asleep pretty soundly. When he, won't, when he woke up the next morning, the only thing he could think of was the spaceship. The next day, and the days that follows, the incident on Interstate 77 became more than just a personal experience. Derenberger's accounts would reach the ears of neighbors, friends, and local media, and soon. There would be reports and curious individuals that would be, end up knocking on his door, seeking to hear firsthand about his own experiences. But that wouldn't happen immediately. As 8 a.m. on November 3rd rolled around in 1966, he tried to maintain a semblance of normalcy. He left his house for work as usual and entered state, Interstate 77. He was still extremely excited about the experience he had just had, if not a little trepidatious and anxious about what had happened to him. And his employer would notice it. 
he walked in and he just wasn't able to maintain a fully normal persona the whole time. I'm just imagining that he just like <clears throat> met Matthew McConaughey out on the road and he was like, hey man, it's crazy out there. You know, like, there's so much more to this life. Why are you guys just fighting? All right. You know, like, <laughs> and then he just, like, met this dude out on the road, and he's like, this guy, man, he's just, like, so crazy. He was, like, floating, dude. You don't understand. I just feel, I just feel that, that vibe from him. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, it's actually not a bad comparison because of the way, yeah. I imagine if you, like, randomly stumbled across a super celebrity that, like, you weren't expecting to. Hey, man, I'm from, I'm, let me tell you something. I'm from Lanulos. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Lanulose is what I call my own special happy place. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just so you know, too, the ship that he kind of woke up thinking about, the one that was in, on the on the road, he describes as somewhere between 45 to 60 feet long and 12 to 20 feet high. To give you an idea of like how big the ship, the guy injured cold, kind of stepped out of was. With the employer noting that he wasn't able to maintain his normal workflow. He had to, he approached Darren Berger and asked him if anything was wrong. Did he was he sick? Was there anything uh, that was happening in the family? You know, just making sure everything was good. And dear old Woody was bubbling with anticipation. He even says himself in his uh, says, says so himself in his book that he was just itching to tell somebody that there it was too much on his mind and it was just he needed to tell someone. And so when his employer asked. Almost without prompting, he just started re regaling the tale of what happened last night. Everything from the ship landing to the telepathic conversation to the questions being asked. And initially, the employer laughed at him at first, but soon realized that if he didn't believe him, at the very least, Woody seemed to be being very earnest about the story. God bless that man. Like, honestly, yeah, yeah. God bless that man. Yeah, like he was just, he, he dealt with it. And at 10 a.m. that morning... At, uh, a man by the name of Glenn Wilson, a producer from WTAP-TV in Parkersburg, West Virginia, came to the store where he was working and asked him if I, he would be willing to tell the story to the public. Without giving much thought to the publicity that would follow in that interview, uh, Woody agreed instantaneously. He would go on the air and he just felt like he had to tell people that this was happening, that these people from another planet had visited Earth, that this might be going on everywhere. Like he just he felt like he had to tell people. And so at 2.30 p.m. on November 3rd, he did go to the TV station and was met by the station personnel, as well as Larry Murphy from Parkersburg News, Sergeant Plum from the city police, Sergeant Venden, uh, Vend, oh God, Vandenver, what? Vandevener, Vandevender, Vandevender, there we go. Vandevender? Van That's a hell of a name. Van Wilder? <laughs> yeah, Van Wilder. I'll type it for you so you, uh, you know, it's Van Evener, that right there. Van Devener. Okay, yeah, Van Devener, Van Devener, Van, Van Devener. Yeah, yeah, whatever. He was a he was a sergeant from the state police and a reporter from Parkersburg Sentinel, an Air Force sergeant, and several other people that he did not know, recognize, or even understand why they were there. And from two thirty till six p.m., they all questioned the shit out of him. He hmm. explained everything just as it happened in complete detail, and then each man in turn would ask, would start questioning him. So they all just went around the room and they all got their turn. During this day of November 3rd, reports of seeing the same ship on the night before were coming into the city in state police as well as the radio and TV stations. So the first question he had is why are they so interested? But he learned through this questioning that other people last night reported seeing the exact same thing. Not, not a conversation with a man, 
but a similar looking ship that was zipping across the highways and heading for Parkersburg. One family in particular, Mrs. Frank Huggins and her son Frank, daughter Susan, had stopped their car and watched the ship very shortly after he'd left the spot where the ship had stopped me. So after the ship took off, within a few minutes, another family actually saw it zip past them, uh, a woman and her two kids. They say they watched it for approximately five minutes until it left, going toward the city of Parkersburg. And then another boy, driving on the same highway, had the shocking experience of having the ship hover over his car and shine a brilliant white light over it. Way more akin to like a normal, I don't want to call it abduction scenario because it doesn't always happen, but remember how we watched in X-Files where his car got shuttered down and a light beamed down on it and stuff? Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing happened, but he has no missing time. The light kind of just ship, uh, kind of fired down its light and then ended up just zipping off on the highway uh, beyond that. And after that happened, he like took off super quickly and immediately reported it to the police. And then two truck drivers were stopped on the same highway by the same ship on the same night, but refused to give their names for publication, although they did report it to police. So there are police reports about it, but they refused to give their names publicly. So it's not a, it's not like a hoax, basically. At least people saw stuff at the very least. Like, who knows if injured cold did actually step out and the, the further stories that we'll get into actually did happen. But there are police reports of the same night of all people seeing something in the sky flying towards the city. And these, uh, and these are reports that were given night of night of. Mm-hmm. OK, that he's learning of the next day through these questionings with the understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to figure out if it was like. They questioned him, and then suddenly a bunch of reports, you know what I mean? But if they're night of, yeah. all good. Those two men also passed their story along anonymously to John Keel, the obvious, the New York author who wrote Mothman Prophecies and so on. He's involved in this in some fashion. Like, he's a he's much more of, a, like, a paranormal, like, UFO hunter kind of guy, interested in, like, the weird stuff. So he kind of gets roped into this because, again, he was making his way to town to meet a woman with a cat with wings that didn't have wings. And now he's kind of just here. Dude, that is where's Neve at, dude? We need Neve. <laughs> Who's Neve? Get him, get, Neve is the catfish, the catfish guy. guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. OK, yeah, yeah. OK, OK. Yeah. I don't know that show well enough, but I know exactly. You know what you're talking Neve. About. Yeah, yeah. Where's seen, Neve at? I've seen a couple episodes of that show. He's the Ashton he's, of catfish, bro. I, you know, that's an excellent. The Ashton. He's the cat wings of catfish. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> As 6.30 rolled around, he eventually was able to leave the TV station. I'm just going to keep going. I just don't know where to go with that. That is just so funny to me that he's like, this girl was like, I have a cat with wings. And he was like, really? <laughs> and then she got there and she was like, I gave it to a boy because his wings fell off. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it's like, you know, that Can you guy imagine felt- being him? You're like, how many times do you think this happened to John Keel? <laughs> Why? He's like, Why did I let myself believe? <laughs> again he goes back to that very uh uh, x-files office just like piles of tapes in a back closet which is a poster that says i want to believe that fits for john keel but uh yeah he left the tv station at 6 30 and went directly home where he was met by several friends as well as a large crowd of people that he had never seen before they all wanted me to tell wanted him to tell a story again and they met and he met with several people where they had seen the ship sometime after 8 p.m. People who didn't report it to the police also now saying like, oh, I saw the ship or I saw the ship. Everybody and all of these people outside of his home. Keep in mind, he went on a public TV station, gave an interview in a kind of small town. It did not take long for people to figure out who he was and where he lived. And it's starting on this night. Every night people would show up, park outside of his house 
sometimes to talk to him, most of the time just to sit and watch the skies and wait and wait and just wait till you see how bad it fucking gets. Yeah, he met some people that would tell about tell about seeing the ship after 8 p.m. on the night of the incident. And he had people literally staying there talking to him until 2.30 in the morning when he had to ask them to leave because he had work the next day. He's like, can you guys please just go home? I have to go to bed. Like, Jesus Christ. Just McConaughey, like, all right, all right, This is all within 24 hours. Like, the event happens, 24 hours. He had a public local, he he reported to the the local authorities. So in your rational mind, you're like, definitely, whatever this is, something seems to have occurred between a bunch of strangers that... They all say happen. What, what more, more curiously for me is he does report it to the local authorities as, you know, Andrew Cold asked him to. And it ended up getting the attention of, and he names people, sergeants from the state police, Air Force people, local, local politics people, local police force. Like this little report ended up bringing in a lot of people to question him. And it's kind of bizarre if it's not real or something didn't happen. Why people from like the Air Force and shit showed up. I can maybe understand state and local police showing up, especially if they all got reports that night. But I don't understand why maybe the Air Force showed up and uh, like local reporters showed up and like more bigger names and eventually NASA. And he drops names. He drops names. These aren't just like and then NASA showed up. He's like, no, city police sergeant Van Devender and all this stuff like everybody's being named. So it clearly something at least was being reported to the point where some attention was being paid to it on some level. It doesn't mean maybe it wasn't like, okay. Maybe it was a plane, right? Maybe it was a test pilot plane or Air Force something. Sorry, go ahead, Jesse. No, no. So, so what you're saying is that at least on a base level, all these organizations showed up. We, the reasoning behind it, we don't quite know. Right. Could it be that they were like, oh, we caught something on radar and that was weird? Or it could be there are a lot of reports that people saw something. So just send a guy to go check it out. Pretty much. That's kind of how it seems like. It was enough of a, a, a stink for them to at least send somebody to take a look at it. But that's until two, as he was talking to strangers till two thirty in the morning when he eventually went to bed. He woke up the next day because, like you know, your normal every guy, he had to go to work. He had to pay the goddamn bills. He had to make sure he got to work the next day. Do you think Indra knew this? Do you think he? Do you think they have work where he's from? They do have work where he's from. But he did remember in the initial thing he asked him, "Do you work?" And when he said yes, he goes, "I too have a job. I'm a seeker." Like he, he didn't. Right, but like, is it one of those things like Star Trek where, you know, they have a job, but like everyone's taken care of. So like they do it for hey, fun. I got a job. I got a job, man. I'm a seeker. Yeah. Like, you know? yeah, I'm I a seeker. Out, dude. I go out on the, I go out on the road and I find people like you and I seek. Jesse, them, you, know, you couldn't be them. more like on the dot than if I tried. Like when we get to the Lanulose lifestyle and there, there's a, is, we know this, the oh, lifestyle. Baby, do you, Hell, we yes. have, I can tell, we can, I can tell you what it's like to live on Lanulose, what people do on Lanulose. That's incredible. There. That's going to be part two is his uh, is the Lanulose like details, so to speak. So on November 4th, he went to work like he always did. However, November 4th was going to be another interesting and bizarre day for dear old Woody. As he was on his way home from Pomeroy, Ohio, a friend with uh, with a friend of his, by the way, in the car of which he gives no name. They were traveling south on Highway 7 toward Parkersburg again when a slight tingling sensation began around his forehead. Like I explained earlier. Very quickly, he knew it was injured cold because he had had this familiar feeling prior or the last time he like had that tele- tele- te- uh, telepathic conversation. 
And so in the moment, he said that Woody said he just didn't want to receive him. Though he ignored him, that tingling sensation never went away. He like he goes, I didn't want to talk to him, but the the, the feeling kind of just dude. literally. I don't like that. <laughs> but the feeling uh, feels gross to me. Can you imagine just like a you week? Yeah, just- <laughs> hello, hello, answer, please. Hello, hello. So he gave in and finally what he calls answered him. He like let the thoughts in. The gentleman that was riding with him knew that was something was wrong, as he later told uh, Woody that he ha- also had some weird feeling in his face, but didn't know what it was. So, like, there was no active allowing him in. The thing that you'll learn, and we'll talk about more in part two, is that telepathy has to be fully consensual between both sides. Like, for it to happen, it has to be an well, act of nice. trust and consensual, which, for me, of course, I'm like, well, what does that say about the greys who try to have, you know, telepathic contact and it's always broken and weird? Maybe they're trying to force telepathic contact. And that's why the messages are always so fucking broken and bizarre because it's not consensual. They're just trying to, like, ram their way into your head and be like, I'm going to give you a message. Listen, with Indrid, he made it very like from moment one. He's like, you want to talk with our lips, with our brains? Like, hey, I just have some questions. I'm just a dude. Dude, he's just like. He's like the woke version, dude. He's just, <laughs> he's a, he understands the power of consent, bro. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. He gets it. His third eye is wide open. <laughs> so his friend obviously didn't allow injured Cold to contact him because he had no idea what the fuck was going on. But Cold was telling Woody that he needed to slow down and drive very carefully. That his ship was directly over the truck and they were following him from a distance where he couldn't be seen. So, he, so like he was around. He was just kind of hovering and following him around, I guess. That's and he continued so to tell Woody that the first time he had contacted him, he had only asked him questions to calm him and settle Woody's fears. At this second contact, he wasn't nearly as frightened, and so Indrid asked him repeatedly to just drive very carefully. Hey, drive carefully. Can you please just drive carefully? Please just drive carefully. Hey, Are you sure Indrid isn't my father? I mean, he- yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> hey, yes, you just need to drive careful. It drive sounds careful. like when you got somebody in your who's related to you. In like your my dad, seat, every yeah. time I go stop at a red light, he holds onto the car like I'm gonna slam into everything. My mom, That's my, my mom. mom always grabs the fucking. She always grabs yes, the fucking the, the, like the, handle, yeah. the old shit handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's like passive aggressively signaling that she thinks she's gonna die, yep. and I'm like, yep. Are you serious? <laughs> drive every 20 years <laughs> um, as a second contact in his head is happening Woody tries to explain what it feels like he tries to put into words how this telepathic communication feels he says it's not pain but as though he was hearing his own voice with his words uh he said it's very hard to explain because previous to this he knew nothing of mental telepathy this is all very new to him um, so he kind of like just words everyone, are bro. forming and bubbling in his mind out of his control that he understands to be Indrid's, I guess. It sounds like it sounds like his inner monologue is getting like hijacked by like an external source so that it sounds like he's talking to himself in his brain. Yeah, it, it is. And, and it kind of fits with Indrid Cold, I guess. At this point, the, it's not really questions that are happening anymore, but instead Indrid Cold is like info dumping as to like where he comes from. Right. <laughs> he's He's like... Uh, I don't know what the exacts of the conversation because he doesn't give the exacts like back and forth of the conversation, but he learns that cold is from a planet called Lanulos, much like before said it was located close to the galaxy of Ganymede. Although uh, Woody then came to kind of believe that Mr. Cold gave the wrong location for their own safety. And he believes that because Ganymede is like a moon around Saturn, I believe. Uh, and he thinks that maybe cold was just kind of like 
lying, lying a little to him? bit. Yeah, about where he came from for his own. St- hey, man, I know I said I came from Lanulos, but I'm actually from the solar system, man. I'm sorry I led you on, man. Still Lanulos. The planet is still called Lanulos. It's just like where it's at. He's not entirely sure. It's like Brigadoon. He kind of just he doesn't want anybody to know quite exactly where it is. Yeah, right. Uh, he continues to explain that Lanulos, much like Earth, is kind of the same as ours in almost every way. They have woods, fields, streams, and even oceans as Earth does. He also continued to say that they had taken uh, that uh, injured cold had actually taken samples of our own vegetation, even that of some animals, and with very few exceptions, these were the same as what they had. So they like Lanulos is kind of like Earth, and the animals are kind of the same. Now I don't know if he now. So here's the thing: I don't know if he meant like we have cows, or that it's like genetically kind of similar carbon-based life form like dna i was gonna say like on a like on a level everything is tastes like chicken vibe where it's kind of like yeah, you know, i think it's closer all the to building that. blocks are the same it's literally like calf it's literally it's literally <laughs> like the same as how yes. star wars does it yeah with with rancor sauce yeah <laughs> but i think that's it like it's like all life is kind of from a similar at least from where he's from it's very similar so while they might not have yeah. cows they might have something that tastes similar to a cow or an animal that might be kind of like a cow i don't fully know i'm just kind of take- just makes sense it just make yeah okay yeah it just makes sense exactly uh he also kind of put forward that hey injured colt was also married he had two sons eight and 11 years old and that his wife's name was kimmy k-i-m-i so they have the concept of marriage and wives and all of that. Yes, but it, when we go again, when we get to part two, there's there's some stark differences between Earth civilization and Lanulo civilization. I would hope so. And then since the previous uh, time that he that he uh, spoken with, or the previous time from uh, I guess like a year back or so, he also had a new daughter, a new child, a baby girl had been born to them, and her name was Kimilis. How are they born? Did he say? I would assume he like very human like from what I understand of their anatomy from further in the book. So they're humans, but from space, they really do. They look a lot like humans. Um, there's just a difference in like, I guess like they're well, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it too much because it's really all about their so society and like how they like they live their lives. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. And he also goes on to say, like, Mr. Cold uh, continued to say that their time wasn't exactly like theirs. They don't have four seasons. They only have three planting, harvesting and cold. Those are their three seasons. Um, So I guess it's pretty like old timey farmer esque in a way. If they just have planting, harvesting and cold season. Um, And in their three seasons, their their lifespans are a little longer than ours. The life expectancy of somebody from Lanulos is anywhere between 125 to 175 of our Earth years as we understand it. So they live a little longer than we do by a kind of like a decades. Bible vibe. Yeah. 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 The Anunnaki, bro. <laughs> oh, yeah, bro. And as the con- Assassin's Creed, I mean, Creed, the Anunnaki right? will have to be a whole ass fucking one day. Uh, we'll have to talk about that shit. Um, but not today. Today is just injured cold day. But as the conversation kind of came to a close, he gave a forewarning saying that, hey, when I end this telepathic communication, you're going to feel like a bit of a shock. So just be ready. It's not going to be like painful. This is going to be kind of like a. Uh, sudden feeling and uh while he was listening super intently to every word he said he had begun to think questions to ask him when he told me he was leaving so just as woodrow was was leaving uh rather just as woodrow was asking questions indrid's like gotta go see you later uh have a good time gotta i I ain't answering any of that (laughs) 
And he broke contact in that small little... It's like, you made it weird, man. Come on, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. you made it a little weird. No, that's too far. And while no. there was a bit of like a, a... You don't know me like that, brother. A small shock to, to that when it broke contact, it also left a slight throbbing pain in his right temple, uh, which dissipated within a few minutes. But it left like a little bit of a weird little headache, I suppose. And at that moment, obviously, he decided, I'm not going to tell anybody this, but I did. But he did reveal this to the NICAP at the next meeting they had with him. Uh, the NICAP, he, uh, I forget what that stands for. I didn't write it in my script. NICAP. National Institute. National oh. Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena. That's what it is. The, the, that ended in, it, it, so one of the, it was, I think it was the pre-Blue Book, Project Blue Book. This was between 1957 and 1969. The NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, uh, he reported to them. So these people are also involved in this story. That these these this federal basically pre Project Blue Book um, group of, of of officers, I guess, were reaching out to him, and he did, like I said, he did pass that along. After his televised interview, his story was getting picked up by local news media, as well as UPI and API, which spread his story all over the fucking world. His telephone began ringing constantly, and they were not even able to have a peaceful meal anymore. All of this, just 48 hours after the incident. Think about that. One day, you're just a normal dude heading to work. The next day, your street is filled with cars. Your car, your phone rings day and night. Everybody wants you to tell the story or ask you questions about the story. You have government people reaching out. You have government like aerial phenomena people reaching out. Your life of peace is gone when you were just Mathis's a small dream. town dude. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> problem is I'm not a small town dude. Nobody's going to fucking come get me because I'm going to hop on a problem microphone. problem is I'm not a small town dude. You're literally from yeah, Rhode Island. Like, it's have, the smallest place. I have place a microphone now, man. I have a microphone now. It's too late. Like they know <laughs> I'm going to blab it into the microphone the instant I have an opportunity to do. Right, right, and that's why they didn't do it before because they knew you'd get to this point. Yeah, they know how credible we are. Well, that, when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about aliens. I was thinking about Power Ranger powers. So, like, I was just that's I was, fair. I want some of those. I wasn't even in yeah. the same ballpark. At that Wait point. a minute. Whoa. I mean, to be to be fair. The Rangers, the Zeo crystal or whatever that thing is called, that's an alien crystal. That's, that's still true, alien. That's I mean, true. yeah, that's alien power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rita Repulsa was like on the moon. She got sealed up. Which on the is moon. literally Moon Men. Yeah, that's real. She was in a she was in a dumpster on the moon. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, you know, maybe I was always in aliens. I mean, it's a sign. Maybe I am like injured cold's offspring. I just don't know it. That's that's a that's a great that's a great thing to walk with in your heart. Honestly, <laughs> just you know what? Nobody nobody look into that. Well, as the phone was ringing, they were getting calls from Washington, New York, California, Texas, letters from all over the world. People were coming from all over to their house to watch for ships. They would even come as early as 5 p.m., eat their dinner in and sandwiches in the car and have coffee in their cars and sit for hours watching the sky. Like, good I mean, what Lord. else are you going to do? I guess so. Like in 1966, what else is happening after work? What, what, what else you got going on? And as much of the sales work was done in the evenings, his wife and children were left alone almost every evening. Marjorie was, uh, which is one of his, his wife's name, was quite frightened of the ships, but was more upset and frightened by the crowds of people that ended up gathering in the yard. And every night there would be as many as 25 to 30 strangers come to their door after he would come home from work, which would sometimes be super fucking late at night. They tried to be patient with them, even inviting them into the house to talk with them while the wife made coffee by the gallons and made cookies endlessly. 
while uh, talking to them till sometimes three or four in the morning. And this is what I say when UFOs can ruin people's lives. This is what I mean. Like this man didn't ask for any of this. They needed to have podcasts at this time. And this guy would have been okay. And he even went on to admit that he, they let this get wildly out of hand. That that, that t- turning no one away that was actually interested in his story until one night uh, when, uh, when he came home from work super late. There were so many cars parked on the road as far as you could possibly see and in their yard that was fully parked for the cars that he had to call the police to get them to clear out the yard. And they estimated that there were about 150 people in the street and in his yard just clogging it up. And the police did come to clear the people out, but most of them, when the cops were gone, fucking came back. <laughs> like, when the cops were like, all right, get away, get away, and everybody's clear, and the cops left, uh, people then filled up the blank spots again until the usual three or four in the morning. And this went on for a few months. Like, this wasn't just a day or a week. This went on forever. And the, the, the stress passed on to his family. His son, who was seven years old, was getting bullied relentlessly at school. The children called his daddy a liar. Alien boy, alien boy, you're the alien boy. Alien boy. (laughs) Uh, They were calling his kid a liar and bullying him so bad that the wife went in to talk to the schools and teacher to get them to do something, which did help slightly. Uh, But the kid became so nervous, as did their daughter, Tanya, who was four years old at the time. They wouldn't even go to bed because they were so afraid of all the voices they could hear outside. Alien boy. Is- Lanulose. Why don't you go back to Lanulose? <laughs> I can see it, dude. Your typical 196. What else are the kids going to do? Uh, and this eventually led to both the kids having nightmares and screaming during the night. They were like eventually led to like night terrors. They were being relentlessly bothered. And being a salesman on commission, this is, I felt, I felt so bad for, for Woodrow for this. Um, because he was a salesman on commission, his work slowed down to a standstill. He was recognized everywhere he went, and people would call him, pretending to be interested in buying his merchandise, to the point where he would drive as far as 40 miles or more to make a sale, only to get there for the people to want to see and talk to him about UFOs and actually having no interest in buying anything, wasting his entire time, gas money, and all of that. Like, he couldn't sell shit People were just using it as an excuse to get him as like a personal guest in their house so they could fucking talk to him. And so his finances depleted. They eventually had to break into their savings, which ended up being depleted. And after they dwindled down to nothing, they had no choice but to move. They sold most of their furniture and moved into a summer cabin that belonged to the wife's family, thankfully. And they did manage to hide from the public for about a month. After about a month, it started up all over again. Their home was now on the banks of a little uh, of the little Kenawa River, and the crowds found them when several UFOs were sighted over the river directly behind their house. So the way their house was found is because they people were seeing UFOs in the woods near where they were living. They would come out to investigate or check it out, and they stumbled across their home and found out who was living there. And that word spread. And all of a sudden their home was being fucking overrun again. The Parkersburg papers carried the story of the sighting and people started coming, he- coming there and found out where people lived. So basically the story of UFOs made it to the paper first, which then led people to the woods where their summer cabin was. And then they discovered that that's where they had moved. So it's kind of weird that that's how they end up being found, but uh, like it, it's, it just kind of happened that way. 
Um, the story circulated around that the ships were coming to see him and that they got uh, really got the crowds coming out. They got so bad that it was actually impossible. It became impossible for him to leave his house to go make sales. It was so fucking clogged up, mm. uh, which is heinous. So they moved again to Vienna, West Virginia, right in the middle of town, almost kind of like hide in plain sight situation. They, he said that they kind of felt safe there until that they were visited by a TV crew from Germany who wanted to make a TV documentary about their experience. They talked to several people who backed up his story with their eyewitness reports of seeing the spaceships while visiting with me. And after this, they moved again because the TV station fucking brought attention to them. This time, they moved to Cleveland in the heart of town where the time of where this is where he ended up writing this book. And he was virtually left unknown, except for a very few close friends that knew where he lived and where he was. So he actually found peace, but he had to move four fucking times to find the peace. And he moved to Cleveland where people basically, I imagine, just didn't give a shit. I don't know Cleveland at all. So <laughs> Cleveland rocks, dude. I know that because I, I would go there. I, I, I think it's nice. Is that weird to say? I've never been. I've never been to Cleveland. I like the Midwest. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in, I've only, the only Midwest place I've been is like Indianapolis. Uh, I've been to Cincinnati. That's that's basically the same as Cleveland, right, Jesse? Um, No. <laughs> Pretty much exactly the same place, no. right? Have you been to one mm. place? You've been to them all? Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Reds... The Reds are the Browns, right? I mean, yeah, you know what? Go to Ohio, say that. Give, give, the, give <laughs> yeah. the old, like... The Reds are yeah, the Browns. Yeah, the Bengals and the Browns are roughly the same thing. As a Steelers fan, I agree. Yeah. They're both trash. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm from East Ohio. That's basically Pennsylvania. <laughs> to give you an idea, too, these four moves all took place in about a month and a half. This wasn't a long period of time. It was between November 4th and a little bit after Christmas, like a little bit before Christmas, rather, where these four different moves happened. And eventually Christmas came and went. And shortly after Christmas, he began getting visitors again, but not by the local like local people eager to get a story. Instead, he started getting visited from people of note. Captain Bruce Parsons of Cocoa Beach, Florida, police department, formerly the chief police, uh, police chief of Parkersburg, who said he was also a security guard for National Aeronautical Space Agency. He uh, the, who listened to his story and then invited him and his family to go visit Cocoa Beach and tell that story to the head of NASA. So he's getting invited out to Florida to tell these people the story. At this time, they were being that's crazy. At this time, they were being visited nearly every night by so many people that were uh, that they were glad to go away for a while for a rest and vacation. People started visiting his house again, though, because he was in a city, it was harder to clog up a street. Uh, but they went. They said, fuck this. Let's get out. Let's go to Florida. And like, let's just get away from the shit. I just I understand that wholeheartedly. So for one week, they went out to Cocoa Beach and were escorted on a tour of the uh, of the complete Cape Kennedy base while they were there. So he got a tour of Cape Kennedy while he was That's there. That's not too shabby. And during that time, he told his story to a man who was introduced to him simply as Charlie, the head man of NASA. He was interrogated every night for five days, and after listening to his story several times, he was told that he had told them that he had told them nothing that they did not know already. So for five nights, he was interviewed by people at the air base and NASA. And when he told the story to everybody, basically, they're like, all right, you're not telling us anything new. So you can get on out of here, which is so weird. A strange thing to say to anyone, though. 
Right. Like he's like that. Hey, you're not telling us anything we don't already know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's like like weird or not. You know what I mean? Like I have no idea. This is like Valiant Thor. This is like Valiant Thor where I'm like, really? But Did we this actually, unlike Valiant occur? Thor, like, <laughs> we actually have like police documents yeah. of like people reporting sightings at the least. Valiant Thor, we have a picture of Congress and somebody being like, that's him right there. That's Valiant Thor, just a man sitting in a chair. Uh, so after he said that, they told him basically they didn't told it. He told them nothing he didn't know already. At that point, Woody kind of like t- became sure to himself anyway, that clearly they must have known what planet he was talking about. Clearly they must know about Lanulos already and must know about all these other people and that this is just extra information that they are gathering for whatever purpose. And several other people had told them of the same kind of experience that he had. And he asked them why they would not release this to the public. And he was told that if he did, or if they did release it, it would cause, and this is going to sound familiar to our recent conversations about disclosure, If they did release this information to the public, they told him it would cause panic. Women would commit suicide, throw babies out of windows, jump under trains, and more. And that this kind of panic could sweep across not just the United States, but the entire world. Of course, Woody did not agree with them at all. And he still doesn't, he claimed, by the time of the writing of this book. And what their reasons were for covering up their investigations, he had no idea, nor could he think of any logical or valid reason for doing so. But of course, if this is all true, and, and there's a million reasons they could put out, like they're not telling him about what actually went down. Several weeks uh, that he'd been there, a Mr. Harold Salkin of Space Age Communications Incorporated tried to confirm that he, that he had a visit with Bruce Parson, uh, rather tried to confirm that he had a visit there at Cocoa Beach with a man by the name of Bruce Parsons and what he told him, but they would only tell this guy that he was, that yes, he was there, but gave him no details. So there was like an external attempt at to, to verify these things by, again, by a na- man by the name of Mr. Harold Salkin of the Space Age Communications Incorporated. And when he did reach out to the government, they were like, yes, he was here, but we're not giving you any details. And that's where they left it. Yeah, very bizarre. Are these confirmed? Like, yeah, we know he reached out to the government. And uh, I mean, yeah, you could like again with all these things. These people did exist. We have their names, but we have no paperwork other than the police reports that we can easily attain. These the government did not release anything to the public regarding this at all. We just know that these names were involved, and we can confirm that these names were were interested in his uh, okay. in his story. Which is like Betty and Barney Hill. They had a very similar kind of experience with the government where they brought Barney in and they questioned him for like a week straight, if you remember. Definitely, definitely legitimizes it. Yeah. In the, some the way. Hills had a very similar experience with the government. I'm not saying it makes it true, but it definitely legitimizes it. It means probably that the government has something else that they're working off of that they're maybe right. trying to compare it to yep. or something you know what i mean some some reason why they're interested and then at that point he was be then again sent a questionnaire in the mail from the air force what meanwhile a questionnaire the nicap once again the national investigations committee on aero phenomenon also began investigating his story separately sending a team of subcommittee people from pittsburgh pennsylvania consisting what? of consisting of six men under the supervision of a Mr. William Weitzel and a Mr. Kevin D. of Belpre, Ohio. They questioned dozens of people who told them of of seeing a very similar ship that he had seen on the same night in the same general location, yet they made no release of the story for several months, and then when they did release it, they played it down as much as possible. And I took special note of this in particular because this sounds like 
the videos that were released in 2017 that they refused to acknowledge for a couple of weeks. And then when they did acknowledge it, it was very quietly and downplayed like fucking crazy. Hmm. Um, and this is also something that did happen. They did question him. He did give him this information. At least we, be- we, we, uh, if we believe him, he gave that information, but they made no public report. Uh, when the questionnaire came in from the air force, he filled it out and then never heard from the air force again. He talked to several other people who got the same treatment from NASA, NICAP, and the Air Force, the people that they were questioning as well to, you know, about the sightings they'd seen. And all of them say they were thoroughly investigated and then dropped. NICAP even hired Dr. On whose? We don't. On whose orders? Right, exactly. Yeah. Why? But why would he? How would he know that he's a civilian? I don't. I mean, how do we know that it was dropped? Well, he's saying they were never reached out to again. Like they just they got the questionnaire. He sent it back and then it was just ghost town. He never heard from them again. And same with everybody else who answered the questions. They they went through the investigation. And when the investigation was done, they heard nothing, nothing. So you don't mean so you don't mean that we know that the program was closed. Oh, we know for a fact that the program didn't close. Well, I just mean like we 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 know that we don't know that the investigation of that specific event closed for some reason. We just know that they got no more. We can only assume that the NICAP did what Blue Book would be doing a few years later or prior to it, rather, whenever that was, which is they probably wrote it down somewhere and marked it and then left it alone afterward, like and then did nothing with it because it you know we didn't really get heavy heavy. UAP UFO research until post blue book post this in more modern ish day uh, a tip I would say is the first maybe program that we could point to to say maybe they were trying a little bit um, but yeah so basically we say when I say dropped it means they were just never reached out to again they did all this stuff that he gave over in the information and then was completely ignored NICAP even hired a man by the name of Dr. Jenkins, a well-known local psychiatrist, to examine him to see if his brain had ever been damaged or if he'd ever suffered from epilepsy. They gave him they gave him an EEG test. Yet, though, when those results came back from the clinic, they were negative, proving that he was perfectly sane and sound, at least when it comes to a physical uh, damage to his brain. Um, they refused to release the test results to the public, however. And one of the NICAP members even told him not to talk to anyone except NICAP. But he then told him I would talk to whom I pleased when I when he pleased. And they were super angry about that response and then never spoke to him again. So he was like, the, the NICAP was like, only us, only talk to us. And he was like, go fuck yourselves. And so they were like, that's not how we want it to work. This is like another, this is like the other Chiluminati bingo card is like the disappointing, like yeah. fizzle out of a UFO sighting yeah, bingo yeah, card absolutely. where it all just goes the same, same exact thing. It becomes like someone gets obsessed, someone like their life falls apart. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so sad that this is how it always ends because it, it really does feel sometimes like I'm going crazy. Yep. Like, it really does feel like there's somebody's hand. The, the fucking dude in the X-Files, like, you haven't really met him yet, but... I yeah. mean, you've seen him, but you, you haven't met... You, yeah, the cigarette man. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's such a perfect, like... Uh, it's such a perfect, like... Characterization. Yeah. Metaphor for, like, what... Yeah, of what the feeling is behind all the shit that makes people go so fringe and so out like, there. imagine, like... <clears throat> This is ruining, is like, he's not rich. He lost four houses. He's had to move multiple times, sell his furniture, run his money dry. Like, this has literally destroyed his life in like two months. And would you trade the show? Would you trade the yes. show to be this man? Yeah. To, to know? Yeah. You said yes I, so quickly. It would, yeah. it means there's so much more to our planet than just fucking But humanity. then if you came back to the, like, we could never have you back on the show and you would have the answers. 
Question. All right, let me let me. Yeah, well, you just want to be on the streets yeah. holding up the end is nice. Let me ask you. Point. Let me ask you a real question. Like this is the real one. You are told by Norg Borg the alien. <laughs> Mathis. Oh man. I will tell you and show you the secrets of the universe. I will let you know that you're not alone, and I'll give you your place in all of it. Okay. But you can tell no one ever. And if you attempt to tell anyone, the words will not leave your mouth. You will not be able to write them down. You can never share anything. Only you will know. Would you do it? Yep. Doesn't have to think about it. It doesn't even have to think about it, bro. Wouldn't you? It doesn't even have to think about it, bro. Like, if that same offer was laid at your feet. Wouldn't it drive you crazy that you had all the answers and you couldn't share? Yes. Oh, I would, I would absolutely lose my mind. I would go insane. Uh, but, man, I would feel sated okay i would be like i would never have to have sex again well i mean that's a way to that's a direction to take it oh. yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> uh, you heard it here first there you go you have you heard it here first actually not 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 the first right, time right. you've heard this here it won't be the last time it's the real, the the real time you heard either i promise you that yeah you haven't heard this here <laughs> first or last and uh you know, there's a lot like he eventually goes and speaks with like uh, Harold from the NICAP gives a story and stuff at one trip from New York to Washington, D.C. Um, they saw what like this UFO bright lights in the sky following them. He actually reported to the Air Force, reported it to several newspapers and the Air Force actually got back to him saying it was just a Russian satellite breaking up in, in the sky. Don't worry about it. And all Woody says about that is he simply goes, what? That is the stupidest explanation he heard. It followed them for a hundred miles along the highway and was still going strong when they passed through New York city. So he's like, that sounds insane. That makes no goddamn sense. You're lying to me. So at this point, I feel like Woody's like already lost whole trust in the government at this point, but he's still reporting it to them. He's doing the best he can to like actually carry this on uh, as the best he possibly can do uh, while still maintaining contact with the government and trying to keep, I guess you would call it like a respectable attempt at reporting these things and like trying to not go into the land of crazy town. He's not going to any conventions. He's not going to any like book signings. The only, when he writes this book, only six copies end up being printed when it ends up happening. Like it's like, it's, he's not making a lot of anything off of this. It's definitely not a plan. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's definitely just wild. Uh, and so time would pass and he would continue to have these weird questions of people would ask him like from governments and stuff. But eventually, and all this time, Indrid's not where to be seen. He he came those first 48 hours, and then he kind of disappears for a couple of months or so. But it wouldn't be the last time that Indrid Cold showed up. While he was still living in Mineral Wells, for instance, he came home very late from work one night, and it was super cold out, and the usual crowd of watchers had already left. He parked his truck by the side of the house, and as soon as he opened the door of his truck, he heard Indrid Cold say, Don't be frightened, Woody. It is, it is Indrid, and my friend... Carl. What? He brought a buddy. He brings a buddy Carl? this time. Carl. K-A-R-L. Carl. Just another, like, Kimmy. Just another one that's... Yeah, just another guy. Another <laughs> friend. So he got out of his truck from work, went inside to find that they were kind of just waiting on the back porch for him at that point. He, they were already there, just hanging out. He invited them into the home, but they refused, saying they didn't want to awaken his family or frighten them. Very considerate of, of injured Colt and Carl. And though it was super cold out, they went and sat on the back porch and talked for two hours. It's like old buddies visiting and surprising you with a ba- like a like a beer in hand, being like, "Grab a seat." Friend of the show, Andrew Cold. 
Yeah, it's, it's, coming it's, on. Like, dude, it's like my ex girlfriend's dad. There used to be a Jehovah's Witness priest that would like, or like preacher or somebody that would come by the front door like once a year to sell him like a Bible or something like that, and he would like invite him in and like debate him for like a couple oh, hours God, and pour him, yeah. pour him a drink. And it became like a thing that they did every year. Same vibe. That's fascinating, though. I could find that being very enjoyable. Because uh, I imagine it wasn't like an angry debate. It was just a very interesting debate consistently. Um, regardless, they chatted outside on their back porch in the cold weather for a couple of hours. And it's here that we actually learn even more about Lanulos itself. Here we learn that the that he tells Woody that on their world of Lanulos, there's never been any kind of war in their world. And that they didn't even understand the word hate. Hate doesn't exist. They don't understand it at all. They are taught from childhood that all people are brothers and sisters, and it doesn't matter where they're from, who they are, or what color they might be. Now, I'm about to say something, but I'm, you got to give me a chance to explain it because it's not maybe what you think it is. Uh, I'm, all right, I'm going to let you say it, but I disavow anything that might come out of your mouth in advance. No, 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 no. it's fine. Uh, he, goes, he goes on to explain that everybody on Lanulos, every creation beyond Lanulos and other, and other worlds, they're all still God's children and that they are one family in God. Yo, this is, yo, is he, is this like uh, Mormonism? No. <laughs> so that's where I was like, so I'm going to say the word God is used, but as we'll see with injured cold, when he explains what their concept of God is, it's not really the Christian God, though Woody does his best to make it the Christian God. If that makes sense. It's almost like he's trying to sure. rationalize what they term as God with what his idea of God is on on his planet under the terms of Christianity, which he grew up. Um, they believe there's only one God who's the creator of all worlds in life. They believe that God loves one as much as the other and that in God's love, there's no discrimination, you know, stuff that we've heard plenty of times. They truly live in the belief that everyone is equal. They believe man's sole purpose on any world is to serve God and to help one another. The, there's only one denomination of faith on their planet and they simply call themselves God's children. Indrid told them that they were not superior to our own intelligence here on this earth, only in the sense that they have learned to serve God and to live longer with love and understanding, and that their space flight was simply to due to a longer study of space research. They just been around longer. They just put time into it. Yeah, they just been around longer. They spent more time doing it. Great. Uh, they they spent hundreds of years, according to Indrid Cold. Uh, conquering gravity and the knowledge of bending distance in space. Now that I also pulled as interesting because he uses the word, obviously gra gravity, but the knowledge of bending distance in space, a like thing that we haven't benders. really verified until very recently, but this book was written in 1967. I and, think. It, and it kind of squares with what we've been saying about weirdly, like what Grush was saying about the propulsion of those craft. Right. At that point, Cold is more interested in hearing of Woody's way of life, so he tells him of their way of life. And it seems so much more complicated than theirs when he begins to speak of it. Woody told him of their different religious beliefs, which baffled him completely. He couldn't, he, and he did his best to explain it to them, and he just couldn't. He couldn't make it make sense to them. Uh, and he, he realized at the end of his explanation, Woody sat baffled too. He doesn't understand why everybody is so separated because of these beliefs. And when he finished telling him of all their different beliefs and unbelievers, he was really mixed up about it, he said. Quote, I'm not a Superman, Indrid said. I can understand why he can't understand our religion, Woody would then reply. 
Yeah. So injured was just like, I'm not a Superman. I don't understand all this stuff. Like it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like a a song from like the mid two thousands. That's the, that's the theme song for uh, scrubs three doors down. I'm no Superman. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So when he tried, Woody couldn't really tell him why they have wars, why they couldn't get along with their neighbors, let alone try to explain why we can't live, why we as a human, human species can't live in peace with different parts of uh, our world thousands of miles away. So Woody became so confused trying to explain it all that he asked him to tell him why they, uh, why that we live in fear of and hatred, why humans are so different. Uh, and what he said in return was that it was the inability to communicate with each other. That words alone are not enough. That we have to show each other we are concerned about one another. He said that if the people of our world had telepathy, that we could understand each other better. We've all had thoughts that we could not put into words or said something that was taken differently than what we, the way we meant it. And he's also said that everyone on this earth has the ability to use telepathy. We've just never learned how to use it. We can learn it because it's easily taught and some of our people already have it. And even though he had been using telepathy, he still did not understand it completely. And I mean, he, I mean, Woody. So he asked Indrid. What about Buzz? I know. <laughs> and so we asked Indrid to explain it to him. I, I got that. Yeah, you got it. Uh, <laughs> Guys, Mathis has seen the Toy Story films. I yeah. Have. He all, was all like, just uh, the first three. I haven't seen the fourth one. Uh, that's, that's okay. I haven't seen that one either. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so when he asked Indrid to explain how telepathy works, uh, after Indrid explained it, he still didn't understand it, but it's, it's still harder for him to put into words, but he tried. And so I'm going to read directly from the book what he tried to explain as telepathy. Quote, mental telepathy or thought transference, as they call it, is very simple. It is merely the ability to release your thoughts. And to do this, you have to trust the person or persons you are talking to for you actually for you actually to open your mind to let the uh, other person look into it. You just think what you want them to know, and the thoughts are transferred into the other person's mind. Indrid told me that the impulses from a person's mind are stronger than any radio signal known, but you have to know how to direct them and control them. You also, as the receiver, have to know how to relax your mind and let the thought or words form in your own mind. Right. It does not. It does sound hard to understand, but it does work. For with them, I can communicate as easily as I can speak English. I have met two people here on Earth that I have, to a certain degree, learned to receive their thoughts. You cannot force your thoughts on another person. They have to be released and flow out. You have to learn how to release and relax your mind, and this is done by mind exercises, what I imagine is meditation. They have taught me how to do this. It was easy, and I learned to do it quickly. I believe everyone here on Earth could learn just as easily. End quote. To give you an idea of how this man also writes, it is very matter of fact, sentence after sentence, a lot of repeated words. Uh, it's not, it's a pretty dry read if you grab this book, but it's a pretty quick one. So that's like how he, that's how injured kind of explained how telepathy works. Almost like a, a freeing, let your thoughts kind of just happen and enter the atheverse. And the, but like the person you're trying to think the thoughts to have to be open to them as well. And you have to like, let the thoughts enter. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. And Woodrow would, would he also said the same thing? He couldn't make no sense of it, but it worked with Indrid because when Indrid is a practiced man, it makes I perfect guess. sense to me, man. Um, so no matter who you are or what you are, no one can read your mind without your consent. That is kind of like the, the, the main sticking point. 
Without the full cooperation of both parties, mental telepathy or thought transference is utterly impossible. You just can't do it without two people being willing. Nobody, including these people from space, can read your mind according, without your help and consent, according to Woody. If everyone here on Earth could use telepathy, it would be easy to see there would be complete understanding between everyone. This in itself would stop wars and hatred. For once, you can learn to understand a person. You can learn to love them. Transmitting your thoughts is easy once you know how. It's almost like daydreaming. Does anyone else see the... No, go ahead. Sorry. Does anyone else see like the faulty logic in this? Which part? Like a lot of human beings think something far different than what they say. And Certainly. a lot of the time, if you were to like, I don't know, hear a person's thoughts, talk with them, that, like, you know, I imagine that could, that wouldn't necessarily be great all the time. You might suss out all the mean, the you, minos. You're already the forgetting the rules of the thought transference. You both have to be willing. You can't just throw thoughts into somebody's mind. And you do have to actively think of what you want to say to them. You can't just like, jump dump their your entire like subconscious upon them so can you so so you so can you lie yeah can you thought lie i uh well actually no according to remind me according to him no because you can you can immediately sense and know deception when it's coming from your mind again so just just putting this out there you're at home with your beautiful missus and she's like baby does this make me look fat What's your brain going to do to you right there? You're going to say, I would like a slice of delicious gooseberry pie, and I'm going to go to the kitchen and get it right this minute. It's an extremely human problem, because none of that exists on Lanulos. None of this problem exists on Lanulos. Oh, so you're saying on Lanulos, everyone looks great no matter what they wear, or they just don't care. There's no... Yeah, there's no sexual hangups on Lanulos, okay? (laughs) There's no baggage. I'm going to tell you this, and and Alex is kind of right. We'll get to this next week. Everybody, unless they're doing something formal, is naked on Lanulos. I told you, man, Lanulos is a little different. You know what I'm saying? They have no shame. This is the body they were given. This is what they have. So that be it. That is right. And that's how it goes. How come a cat ain't, how come a cat ain't got an outfit on? <laughs> yeah. What the hell's that about? Yeah, yeah you know exactly. Lanulos. Very nudist friendly out in Lanulos. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of like, yeah. So yeah, you can lie, I guess, but you would be able to be told you can lie. Like it'll be... T- People can tell, but you can also just choose not to answer. But also this weird, this weird judgmental thought that you're immediately having doesn't happen on Lanulos. People don't have hatred and this weird, like, don't believe that other feeling of like bizarre, like a uh, judgment, judgmental, like perception on, on other people of Lanulos. No fights on Lanulos, only orgies. Yeah, basically. That, though, honestly, you're not wrong. We'll get to that uh, next week. It's the Rayleigh. We're almost bro. done with this episode, boys. We're almost there. We're almost there. And then we'll leave. We're going to leave off as dear old Woody heads off to Lanulos for a visit himself. He's trying to meet. He's trying to find Andy, not get left behind, not get left behind. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, transmitting your thoughts is easy once you know how it's uh, it's almost like daydreaming, completely relaxed and just letting your thoughts drift to the one you're thinking of. The the people from space did not always have the ability to use telepathy. uh, Indrid would tell them they have a legend of how their world not only was populated, and how, but how telepathy came to them through God. Would you, are you ready to hear the origin story of Lanulos? Well, I mean, obviously. It's about time. In the beginning, a spaceship crash landed on Lanulos. Dude, it's, it's past humans, bro. Oh, dude, you're not Atlanteans. Supposedly from Earth. Yep. According to legend. Yep. The space travelers, male and female, 
immediately started working to repair their ship. One was they named worked- Adam, and the other, <laughs> Avey. <laughs> Avey. They worked. One was named Wally. <laughs> That's just their pet. They worked for several years trying to get their ship repaired enough to fly. They began quarreling among themselves on how to repair the ship, and they eventually became so angry at one another that they started leaving the group with their families to make their own way on this planet they clearly were not getting off of. Finally, when no one was left to repair the ship, they were all trying to just to make a living at what we now call farming, but apparently Lanyulus is a different term. And these individual family groups began to get very lonely and realize the futility of the anger that had separated their party. They began thinking more and more of their friends, wishing they could talk to them, but not knowing where they had settled and being afraid to travel too far from their home. All they could do was wish and think of their friends and hope to meet them again someday. Their wishes to communicate with their friends became so intense that one time a man realized he was hearing the thoughts of a man whom he had been closely associated with. Their their thoughts eventually would draw them together. Realizing what their intense desires had accomplished for them, they gave thanks to God and concentrated on the other people of their party. And that was the beginning of mental telepathy. Those guys with the red and blue M&Ms, the red and yellow (laughs) M&Ms. Yeah, you got it. That's what lives on Lanulos. And M and M and M. The M and M's are from there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. They look like the spaceships. Amazing. Realizing that God had given them the chance to come together again, they devoted their, their learning of God's way and credit everything to God. This is the reason these people are religious, as we call it. Indrid told them that their world was guided by what they call the guiding council. This council is comprised of representatives from the different worlds belonging to the intergalactic circle. Each planet elects their representatives, the number depending on the population of their world, and are elected by popular vote of the people. This intergalactic circle is beneficial in that all planets receive the benefits of sharing in all new developments in the fields of technology, medicine, engineering, and more. The guiding council studies each world's problems, no matter what kind, and recommends a way for them to overcome them. They cannot use force of any kind in any way, but because of their ability to understand each other, there is always a way to find the cause and cure for any problem on a planet. At the end of their talk on their back porch, he invited them to take a ride on his ship. And at this particular moment, he refused. He did walk back to the ship with them, which was about 1,000 yards behind their house and back of a large barn. And he stood and watched both Indrid and Carl get back on the ship and bid them goodbye, and saw them quickly disappear into the night sky. But a seed had been planted in, in, in uh, Woodrow Derenberger. To see Lanulos with his own eyes, to fly on a spaceship that defied physics, how could anyone say no to that twice? And so, next episode, as we begin our finish... And finish he goes with them, dude! And as we begin part two and the final part of Injured Cold, Derenberger himself will board the ship and fly to Lanulos to experience I cannot life wait. itself and meet a couple of humans who left Earth decades ago to live on Lanulos and offer. Wait, hold on. Time out. Time out. Decades ago? Yep. 40 years prior to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it was of mere course. decades. And of course, Good Lord. Woodrow Derenberger would also get an offer to move to Lanulos permanently. But we'll see how that's he all handled. His own big titty alien <laughs> wife. I, dude, I would be like, take me away. If I vanish one day, I went to Lanulos. Okay. 
Maybe not. Maybe not. I shouldn't put that out there. If I vanish one day, make sure I haven't been killed first. And if I haven't been killed, I probably went to Lanulos. Check. Right, check right, Lanulos. Right. Got it. Guys, make sure I haven't been killed. But then head right out to Lanulos. Bring the gooseberry pie. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. I, and there'll be a lot of naked people there. I love that. I love that. I'd love to hear that. And that'll be where we end part one of our two-part revisit of Injured Cold, a much more detailed and in-depth look at the life of this man after his interaction with Indrid and the weird, bizarre, both good and bad things that happened to him. They're just like us, these naked aliens. <laughs> They're just like us, except they don't have hate or war they're just like us. It's so weird. They're, they're just they're just woke. But it's the weird the woke mind virus. This is, yeah, this is the future the Lanulos. lefties want, dude. <laughs> oh my god, this is where all the vax people go. No, dude. No, we know what conspiracy is. This is where all the anti-vaxxers are. I hope you enjoyed this revisit to Injured Cold. Mm-hmm. We'll be back next week with the finale. I'm very excited to tell you guys all about what Lanulos looks like, the foods Hell he yeah. eats, the people he meets. Ooh, the foods oh, he eats? Oh my dude. god, he's gonna have like rancor sauce and calf. Oh, it's great. It's fucking great. Uh, There's so much cool shit. So that'll be next week. Thank you guys so much for supporting and listening to the show. We'll be Patreon.com slash Illuminati pod. We'll be back next week with another episode. And over at that Patreon.com slash Illuminati pod is Alex. So definitely put October out October 15th, Los Angeles, California, Telegram Ballroom. Oh, come see us. Tickets available now. Please come see us. Tickets available. Link in the description below, wherever you're watching this. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate you. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the... I don't know who they are. There's two. One. Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. No. Neo and Trinity. No. I don't understand, and I probably never will. Let me just tell you right now that there's two... Kennedy and Claire Redfield. I'm telling you, I think he literally just looked up famous duos. Cheech and Chong. And it's been going through the list ever since. I'm trying to dig deep. Which one of you is uh, Dick Powell? Me? Your name's Jesse Cox. <laughs> I want to love you. I want my mind. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Alex and Jesse. Like a shooting star across the sky that's actually a UFO. 
I'm from East Ohio. That's basically Pennsylvania.